Um, that accompanied it. Um, so um, last week we had a discussion on historical criticism, and as I said at the beginning of this discussion, it sounds boring, but it's quite controversial. And we ended up having a really acute example of that controversy. The older gentleman who walked in uh, and left right after our meditation ended up calling the church Tuesday night, seeking the phone number for our bishop, our president, to get me fired. Um, and he wasn't here for any of the content of the discussion. He was, he was only able to read this. And so I'm assuming it has something to do with this handout. Um, just kind of an example of like really how triggering this is for people. Just the idea of reading ancient texts in their own context is like, do you have this? Do you, does the bishop and do they know that you're doing this? And are they? Yes, I, I called. And... Oh, I called the bishop. She immediately was like, "I affirm what you're doing. This is wonderful." Blah blah blah. And yeah, and our council president emailed him and said, "We are very happy with our pastor. Please don't come here again. Please don't, you know, blah blah blah." There's other churches, etc. So, um, the guy lives in Montana. I don't expect that. Um, I'm also, you know, it's kind of a learning experience for me. So because this needs to be a safe space for all of us who do choose to come, I'm going to do a better job at vetting people that come in. Um, Josh and I talked about this. Like when that guy walked in, my red flags were just on fire, you know, like I immediately. Um, and so I, huh? I think I need to be the bouncer, you know, or it could be a communal um, activity. <laughs> you know, yeah. Um, Danish, and pissed off that we didn't speak Danish. Yeah. So. I'm going to do a better job at when someone, you know, new, it kind of sets my intuition, makes it kind of, you know, my spidey senses tingling, um, try to have a conversation with them and just explain what this is and make sure that they understand it and let them know that they're welcome. But if, if this is not something they jive with, please come and visit when we're done. Kind I'll of come thing. a little bit earlier because I do speak Danish. Oh, cool. So, in case any other Danish... Angry Danes. <laughs> As opposed to the happy Danes. Yeah. <laughs> um, so that'll be my commitment moving forward, but also kind of to highlight, really, that I wasn't kidding when I said this really does kind of set some people off. Um, the other thing, so like I said, historical criticism is the bedrock of our um, way of interpreting the Bible, and it really should be the bedrock of how anybody interprets any ancient text. And when I say ancient, I mean like the Constitution of the United States should be read from a historical critical perspective. So even not that old. Um, but, but because it's so foundational, in talking to a couple people last week afterwards, realizing that, that there just wasn't enough time to fully deal with all of this. And... Um, did I start recording this? Yes, I am. Okay. I'm recording this for Maria and Christy because they really wanted to be here. Um, 
as well, but couldn't. They're doing a private event. And so I, I kind of, I think some people had some negative um, reactions to it, not because it's bad, but because it's a bit disheartening to realize like what the church has done um, developing its own theology and especially developing, developing it from a place of power as opposed to a place of oppression and trying to be present with oppressed peoples, etc., which very much is what Jesus was all about. Um, and so I wanted to talk today about like what are the positives of utilizing historical critical analysis? Why, why, why do we do this and what's the benefit of it, etc.? Um, and so... On the back of the handout, no, oh, I left my other question sheet. Um, never mind. I, it's really not that important, anyways. Um, what I wanted to briefly talk about today is the positives. I want to go through this and kind of talk about what it reveals for us, and then um, and then open up for just some questions, comments, type thing. And then I'm also going to try to end us at 11:45 today, um, just because. Uh, Eileen's party is happening, and I want to make sure that um, those of us who want to be there can be there as well. And then next Sunday, we'll be back for the full experience of, of Unorthodox. Sound cool? All right. And with Eileen's party, everybody's invited. So if you want, please come. There's plenty of food. Um, I think there's several bouncers. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, the areas that we talked about last week um, as far as historical critical analysis that I wanted to use to kind of highlight what it is was homosexuality, apocalyptic literature, hell, son of God, and um, this Duke Divinity grad student, which really is about women's place in the Bible. And it's disheartening to go through these areas and see how the church, I know, right? Very simple, very simple, lighthearted stuff. <laughs> Um, and, and we definitely went in depth um, with this stuff last week. So, I mean, it's not so much to go in depth of it today, but really what's the positives of this? And, I mean, the positives are going to be basic for, for you um, as we kind of go through this. So I'm going to start with, like, homosexuality, right? Um, the church, in, especially in Western societies, has been condemning LGBTQ people for... Um, about 200 years, but, but more prominently in the last 80 years. Um, and so it's used, it's used texts in the Bible, as we talked about last week, where the Greek was mistranslated to say the wrong thing. And people just fully accepted that. They just thought that's what the Greek says. That's what the Hebrew says. And with historical critical analysis, we realize not only does the Greek and Hebrew say something else, we can look at the history of how it was translated to say that these words were translated to talk about child molestation rather than homosexuality. That's the prominent um, uh, translation. Um, but to see when that started, how long it lasted, and when it was changed to homosexual. Um, and so the positive spin of that one is that using homosexuality to condemn LGBTQ people can be, not for everybody, because there's a lot of anger with that, that, that harm that that LGBTQ people might say, I don't want to ever be a part of the church. And that's totally valid. Um, within like our church structure, however, we have a lot of uh, leaders um, who are, are part of the queer community. Um, the bishop for our synod here who just got nominated or elected in June is the first open um, 
lesbian to be bishop in our in our national church structure and that comes and for for her and for a lot of our our queer siblings in realizing that not only did this mistranslation happen but the foundation of the bible was to lift up people who were told that you are not good enough you are um, condemned for whatever reason uh, when we look at Jesus who goes to the woman at the well who's there at noontime because none of the other women would let her um, draw water when the rest of them go there who'd been excommunicated from her community because she had had um, you know five different husbands etc um, Jesus Jesus intentionally goes to this woman and says please give me a drink of water um, and affirms her and lifts her up and I mean the Bible is rife with these kinds of stories um, and so for a lot, of, a lot of people in the queer community to key in on that aspect of, of the Jesus movement um, and, and, and what scripture has said has been a space for a lot of LGBTQ people in the church community to um, develop church spaces that do that same exact thing. And that is absolutely my hope for unorthodox, is that this is a space that affirms people in their identities, that doesn't just erase it and say, we're all one in God, but to say, you as you are are not just good enough, you are seen, you are loved, you are a beautiful child of God. Um, not in spite of, but because of. Um, and, and so again, that's a positive that comes from historical critical analysis because you get, to, you get to the core of what the text is actually saying about um, seeing people as they are and loving them in that identity, um, especially. Does that make sense? Um, apocalyptic literature, the book of Revelation, right? We talked about this. It's apocalyptic literature is treated as this manuscript for how the end of the world is going to happen. This has led to a lot of policies within our country that have um, created um, unrest in the Middle East and have created some abhorrent um, ecological policies that basically say we can do whatever we want with this world because God's going to replace it with a brand new one at the end of all things. Um, looking at apocalyptic literature within its own context, however, we end up seeing that most apocalyptic literature in the Bible is specific about providing hope and comfort to oppressed communities. So um, when slavery was happening in this country, when black people were kidnapped from their homes and separated from their families and sold into slavery in America, um, we look at, utilizing historical critical analysis, we look at not just the biblical text, but also the history of what happened in this country, and we see that uh, black people were um, illiterate because they had no reason for literacy in their native countries and coming here being illiterate uh, they were intentionally um, prevented from learning how to read and part of that was because America was a Christian nation you know the, the Bible was everywhere however slave owners understood that the Bible has a lot of stuff about liberation you know you don't want the slaves reading about Moses uh, and the Exodus um, and so uh, at times there would be black folks who did learn how to read, typically because they were responsible for educating other white kids, etc., cetera, um, who then would read the Bible and then secretly teach other black slaves how to read as well. And so literacy did spread, not 
far and wide at this time because it was um, against the rules to do so. Um, but we do see the black community in this time start to go to the Bible, to go to the Exodus story, um, but go to a lot of the apocalyptic literature, a lot of the book of Revelations. And, and they were able to authentically see this is a book that is condemning uh, empire. It's a book that is condemning oppression. And it is saying that God sees the oppressed, hears their cries, and that God is primarily for oppressed peoples. And this really becomes the genesis of um, the, 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 the type of Christianity that, that, that slaves in this time um, gravitate towards. When you read or uh, sing African spirituals, right, which are some of the most beautiful um, hymns I've ever encountered, um, it's, it's very much about that oppression and how God sees the cries of God's people and how there's this ultimate hope at the end of all things. And so when you, when you look at apocalyptic literature in that context for us today, um, it, it, it should be literature that still provides us hope, that says that God is the God that sees the brokenness of the world and is present with it, and um, that, that God is meant to end oppression and evil and injustice, etc., but it's not just God doing the work. It should be us doing the work as Christians, too, because that's what the apocalyptic literature is about. Hell. It's a fun one. I think most of us today have just given up on hell, right? I mean, a lot of us just have kind of said, I'm not going to bother with it anymore. Um, I know a lot of folks who culturally have been brought up with that fear of hell, and so it still lives on with them. Um, if someone asked me if I believed in hell, I would say yes, but I would say I believe in Jesus' version of hell, not the church's version of hell, which primarily is that hell is not a, a place you go to after death. Hell is an experience that we have when we are, excuse me, living apart from a community, when we are living contrary to God's way of life, of love, justice, compassion, when we live life for our own selfishness, that is when we experience hell. And that is very much what Jesus is talking about when he's talking about um, Gehenna, Hades, separation, um, the lake of fire, all of this stuff. It's, it's very allegorical ways of describing an experience. Do you have a question? Yeah. Would you take that same um, definition and, and give it to heaven as well? I would, yes. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and Jesus would too. So when, when Jesus talks about heaven as well, it's the complete opposite of that. It, it is a present experience of, of wholeness, of love, communion with people and God, etc. Um, however, historical critical analysis that's enabled us to look at not just what Jesus believed about afterlife in this time, but what was happening with Jewish people's beliefs in afterlife at this time. And so about 150 years before Jesus was when Jewish people started believing in an afterlife. And ideas in this time moved very, very slowly. So um, 150 years later, when you get to Jesus, some Jewish people believe in afterlife. Some Jewish people don't believe in afterlife. Um, they're also entrenched in a Greco-Roman worldview that very much believed in an afterlife and was influencing Jewish theology at this time. And so we can look at that and say, yeah, Jesus believed in an afterlife. Jesus was a universalist. 
and believed everybody was going to that afterlife, this, this paradise. But Jesus wasn't very concerned with the afterlife. He was far more concerned with the present experience now. And when he talks about heaven, he was more often talking about that present experience than he was talking about an afterlife destination. Yeah. And so when you say he was, when he was talking about heaven, he was more concerned with now versus afterlife. Are you, are you gleaning that from what he said about Not just that, but also what, what Jewish theology was, not only at that time, but even today. So Jewish theology in that time, yes, well, it believed in an afterlife. Some of it did. Jewish theology was also far more concerned with this life. It was about living in covenant relationship with God and with community. And, and so um, Jesus, being a Jewish person, would have been within that same line of thinking. But looking at the text also, so like Mark chapter 1, verse 15, I have said is probably the thesis of all of the Gospels. Um, and that's when, you know, that's when Jesus, and so Mark is the earliest written Gospel. It's the, the oldest one. It was written sometime in like the 60s or 70s. Um, probably captures what Jesus said more authentically than uh, Luke and Matthew and John. Um, and in, in Mark one fifteen, Jesus says that um, uh, I, I have come to preach the good news that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So for, you know, essentially is what he's saying is the kingdom of heaven is here now. It's not somewhere you're going to go after you die. It's right here, right now. Um, talking about historical criticism, translations ended up changing that uh, translation from saying at hand to near the kingdom of heaven is near so that's another important right when does that change? i don't know off the top of my head um uh it would have been um it probably would have been uh reformation thinkers um so 15th 16th century and what did they change it to from the kingdom of heaven is at hand to the kingdom of heaven is near so it's, it, it moved from a present thing to a future thing. Um, and, and that change would have happened because the culture at that time was saying, well, no, this is more about future destination than it is present experience. Yeah. Um, and so again, you know, what is the positive there for us today? One is to say, absolutely, hell is real. Absolutely, we can experience hell. But we spend so much time trying to avoid what we've been told hell is that we're actually probably experiencing that hell trying to avoid hell. Does that make sense? Because the way of Jesus is more about inviting us into communion with each other, with God, with creation, etc. Now, if we are so consumed by avoiding these future consequences, we are then not living presently, not caring for people now, we're more concerned with our own souls in the future than we are with the things that Jesus was trying to point us to now. Huh? Yeah. And, and then we, we live separate from our communities. I mean, if you think of what people do with hell today, people who believe in hell as a future destination, it's a very divisive worldview because they separate those into who are going to hell and those who are not. And their work is about trying to get people to avoid hell versus trying to get people to uh, avoid hell now or experience heaven now. Yeah. So when, that, so when they change that verbiage from at hand to near, do you, can, do you personally, is that where you 
Yeah, except it happened over the course of like 700 years. So we're talking about um, the idea of like eternity and future stuff starts with Augustine in 5th century. But Dante is the one who takes it and runs with it in, in the 11th century, 12th century. 13th century, sorry, 13th century. Um, and then once Dante does that, it basically becomes the centerpiece of, of all of Western Christianity's theology on hell. Um, and it wasn't until historical criticism came out that people were able to start shifting that and say, oh, this is what the text is already saying. Who, what was Dante's role? Because I know he wrote Dante's Inferno. He had this big thing that he wrote, and then there's like all this art, and there's like it's like the levels of hell. But like, was he a theologian? Was he just a dude that like wrote stories? Was he an artist? Was he? Like, he was a. Singing? I mean, he was a poet. He was a poet the way that. Um, Homer was a poet like you're not just trying to convey stories you're trying to convey what you believe as truths as worldviews and and Dante very much felt that he was doing that philosopher. yeah um, he wasn't a theologian he wouldn't have called himself a theologian he didn't know Greek and Hebrew um, he used a lot more of uh, Latin texts Latin mythology Roman uh, Greco mythology than he did Christianity but combined them um, but if I had to describe him, like a poet philosopher kind of a thing, and not all philosophers are good. Were you trying to speak truth for the time? For the um, I mean, he was trying to speak the truth that he believed, um, which was very much saving one's soul from this this future damnation kind of a thing. And they ran with it. They ran with it. But Dante was extremely colorful. Um, everything in Dante's Inferno. How many of you are familiar with Dante's Inferno? Um. I mean, you know, I'm trying to think of, um, like, people who were being punished in hell for gluttony had to eat themselves to death, resurrect, eat themselves to death again, right? So Dante was very much trying to be as descriptive and, like, grotesque as possible. Um, and, and he was the first person to take hell and do something like that with. Prior to that, there, there just wasn't that kind of uh, visceral description of what this was going to be like. And again, um, most of the stuff that he painted hell to be like was influenced by Greco-Roman mythology than it was anything that you encounter in the Bible. So it would seem like, particularly in that time, the reason it rose was because the church wanted it to rise, or the people in power wanted that kind of picture yes. to rise in order to <clears throat> have people behave now. Yes. Although you could make an argument that maybe they would still rise if the church was like very against it. Like, don't read this thing that this guy is saying that's not true, and then people are going to start reading it. That there's, it could go the other way. But it could, but, but what happens with this, um, if you can make people more concerned with what what's going to happen to them after they die, than pointing them to liberating people who are oppressed now, then the powers that be get to continue on. Then people can't come together and actually end oppression. Um, and that very much has an effect on us today. There are so, I mean, we have 70% uh, of this country is Christian. I think that's 260 million people say that they're Christian in this country. Imagine if 260 million people suddenly became um, 
ecologically sound, decided that oppression and inequity and injustice has no place in this society, uh, it would end overnight, right? That's so many people who would come together and do that. But because so many Christians have been influenced by uh, this kind of archaic way of believing, that stuff gets to continue on. The positive of this, however, is that for people who do begin to employ historical criticism, this stuff comes to light. And we can realize that God is a God of justice, of equity, of inclusion, of community. Um, and we can start creating spaces that include those values as well. We can be churches and spaces that fight for justice, that fight to end inequality and justice, et cetera, all that stuff. Um, and you only get to that space with historical criticism because so much of the powers that be that were pushing the Bible out spun it a very different way. Do you think that you know the people who were the beginning of the founders had that sense of how they needed to have a separation of church and state in order to make that possible, to make it possible to um, not have a religion that simply Part of the state apparatus. I don't think they got together and said, hey, this is a giant conspiracy, we're going to do this kind of a thing. Um, Taylor talked last week about the fundamentals that were written, the fundamental essays that were written from 1910 to 1950. That was very much a concerted effort to come together and say, we're going to create a theology of individualism, etc., that's going to benefit the rich and the powerful over the oppressed. That was a concerted effort. But back in this time, it, it, it was just because this theology was already being funneled by powerful people. They, they, their worldview was to see it this way. I guess I just think that because <clears throat> there's such a, a, a threat of separation of state and religion in the Constitution and in our history, that that makes more room for historical criticism than might be. I mean, to a, to a degree, but when you look at the history of our own country, you have these people who are fleeing pers religious persecution who immediately come over here and start religiously persecuting people, right? So it really wasn't like a sep let's keep separation of church and state because the church could persecute. It was like, we're going to do it really so that we can create our own value system, which will also persecute people, but in a different way. Um, I'm going to stop there with, with kind of the positives just because we're running out of time, and I'm just going to open up for you guys, uh, any questions or comments? Um, again, historical criticism is the like hallmark way of interpreting the Bible that not only that I employ, but every pastor in our denomination employs. Um, it's it's what will be utilized as we talk about stuff within unorthodox, and so I I want you to very much have an understanding of it, but I also don't want it to like dishearten you to the point that you're like. I just don't want to talk about negative stuff because um, historical criticism definitely liberates us to see the Bible as this incredible, incredible um, book that says that God is, is on the side of the oppressed, not the oppressor. Um, and God calls us to firmly stand up against oppression. And that's not just oppression of people, that's oppression of the environment. Um, And, and, and kind of oppression of our own psyches, of our own, like, we beat ourselves up. We, we tell ourselves that we're bad, we're, we're, we're not deserving of God's love, etc. I think that actually a lot of separation comes from projection of shadow. 
you know, that sort of, I beat myself up because of this, and, or I don't like this part of me, so I project that onto someone else. Um, or my sense, you know, some cultures are just too sexual, and some cultures are just too greedy, and some cultures are just too lazy, and it's because actually I see in myself laziness, licentiousness, and greed. Mm. And I don't like that. I like, yeah. <laughs> I think that's well said, Steve. Yeah. So of the books or the references from the back, which one would you recommend most that goes over like the all these topics? Is there a need to go through like because they all are kind of connected in my opinion? Yeah. Um no, but if I had to recommend something, Rob Bell's What is the Bible is probably the one I would recommend. Rob Bell. Rob Bell. Rob Bell, yeah. And Rob Bell was an evangelical pastor who got fired because he suddenly realized through historical criticism that the version of hell he grew up with was wrong and, you know, said that, no, nobody goes to hell because hell doesn't exist this way, and then he got fired. (laughs) Yeah, and it was like 10,000 members strong. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. there's a Rob Bell documentary we watched um, two summers ago, I think. Yeah, we watched that in, in church here. Um, it was really cool. Um, you know, and in, in, in our experience of church is very detached from a lot of other experiences of church. The black church lives this out. Their theology, their music the way they come together as a community is very much centered on um, liberation, on, on God of the oppressed type stuff. Um, for us, it's far more intellectual. It's trying to like, you know, saying we, we intellectually agree with it, but it's hard to live this out because so many of us come from privileged places that don't live in oppression very much. Um, I can't say that for everybody here, but f- I, I know for like, this church especially most of the people that come to this church that's the case so it it, it stays within the intellectual and has not um transitioned to the kind of the experiential however the black church lives this out and like going to a black church experiencing their liturgy their music um it's just entrenched in all of this same with liberation theology which is primarily the theology of latin america did your hand go up malia Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And I think that most of us are, you know, white privileged folks are not aware of how oppressed we are ourselves by a culture that doesn't care about the environment as much, that hypersexualizes our viewpoint of the world, that makes acquisition of things better than love, and that. One of the reasons then that we as white people don't want to reach out is because it has to do with that. And it feels like for me, part of that came from understanding uh, One Nation Under God, what mm. we study. Yeah. And how advertising and corporate interests and personal um, value, evaluation, personal 
self-esteem came to be so aligned with a certain view of Christianity that is itself oppressive of the spirit. I, I think that's very well said. Um, I, I would even go, and I'll say it in this space, if I said this on Sunday, there would be a lot of pushback, but, and I have said this part on Sunday, is that Christianity is not a belief system, it is a way of life. And we've turned it into a belief system so that we can escape the way of life that it's meant to call us to. And the truth is that this way of life is about liberating people. It's about experiencing heaven now. If Jesus were here looking at the white privileged person, he would say, by not living this out, you are robbing yourself of heaven. You know, that's the consequence. It's not that you're not doing what I'm telling you to do. You're literally robbing yourself of the experience of heaven because you have separated yourself from community. You look at the face of injustice and just allow it to continue. Um, and you rob yourself of that wholeness that Jesus calls heaven. Um, and and, and the, the part that I will say very explicitly is that I firmly believe if a person is not willing to live this way of life out, they are not a Christian. Which means millions of Christians in this country, I would not call them Christians. It's interesting because in the last uh, five years, just that thought is that um, there's a lot of things that I have not believed in the Christianity faith, but feel like I would still call myself a Christian because like understanding what Jesus was teaching and wanting people to do. So then I've been torn of just like saying, oh, I identify as a Christian, but not the belief system part of it. Yeah. Well, so there is, there's literally zero dogma, doctrine, or theology in the church today that was developed before Constantine took over. So that should be a huge um, red flag. Every element of doctrine, dogma, and theology that the church has, that the Western church has, was created after Rome took over Christianity. So it's okay to feel that way because, you know, we should look at what was Christianity those first three centuries before Constantine did that um, and entrench ourselves in that. natural subsense that we all have and I guess to add that right to really expand 
Yeah. Well, that's why you see in the church structure when the church was powerful that the people who tried to do that were either afraid of excommunication um, or excommunicated, and they literally, you know, these were where all the mystics came from. They separated themselves from that structure, and they went off on their own, and they experienced it, they wrote about it, and, and these are the people that have survived that we read about today. Teresa of Avila um, is the one that comes to mind right now, 12th century mystic. Um, and, and, and thank God their writings have survived because they literally had to escape from the church structure to do that exact thing. Um, and try to share that with other people, too. Yeah. All right. Thank you, everybody. Um, again, this was a little truncated today, uh, but we will be back to normal next Sunday. Um, if you guys want to come and join the party, please do. And if not, we'll see you next week. Are you being <laughs> Yeah, I can. Yeah.